Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Excited to be preaching the book of 1 Peter. We're going to do some introductory things today. We're going to look at a purpose statement from the book itself, so we make sure and get the big idea of the book as the book states it itself. And then we're going to get into the first two verses of 1 Peter. So first, who is the Apostle Peter? Uh, Peter was a Jewish fisherman, so he was a normal guy. He was a blue-collar worker the way Jesus was. Jesus chose blue-collar workers, not those who had been you know, in the academic circles, not that academia is necessarily wrong. We certainly need Christian academic, uh, academics. And we need people who are highly educated. But the, the guys that Jesus chose to run with him, you know, it, it didn't fit the criteria of who we would pick today. Um, Jesus didn't care about affirmative action. <laughs> uh, he didn't care about what people thought and who he thought he should pick. He chose who he wanted to choose. And Peter is one of these guys as a fisherman that was just a normal, a normal dude. We know of Peter's sin because if we're familiar with the Bible, we know the highs and the lows of the Apostle Peter. He is this character that's almost kind of like an ADD character in the scriptures where he's here and there and everywhere. He kind of chases rabbits even when he's around Jesus. And, you know, at one point, Peter's like, you can't, you can't wash my head. You can't wash my feet. And and, uh, and Jesus is like, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. He's like, okay, well, then wash my head also. And he's this guy that just it seems like here, there, and everywhere. We see that Peter, he denies Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty big sin, right? In front of people, he denies Jesus. And then just a few weeks later, he gets to preach and sees the Holy Spirit of God indwell the people of God. He sees a massive revival where he is the preacher, the one who had just denied Jesus was reinstated into ministry and preaches and sees God do amazing things. The Spirit descends. As Jesus ascended, the Spirit descended, and he got to see thousands of people meet Jesus through the preaching. P- Peter was a married man. He was a married man. He had a mother-in-law. If you have a mother-in-law, that means you have a wife. So he was a married man. We find that in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. And uh, we see it's a pretty important thing that Peter was married. To this day, in, the, in, in several different streams in, in so-called Christianity, there's the idea that to be called into ministry is to walk in a life of celibacy or to not be married. And we find that Peter was married. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, counter to the idea of this apostolic succession and, and Jesus being the one who commissioned Peter as the first pope... Peter refers to himself simply as a fellow elder in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. His estimation of himself was a slave of Jesus. That's what he calls himself, a slave, servant of God, and an apostle, and a fellow elder. So he did not view himself as the pope or the first pope at all. He simply viewed himself as a called man, a slave of Christ, and an elder of the most High God, the elder in the church of God. And the pur- purpose of the book, I-, I love this because the Gospel of John does this very well for us, and First Peter does this as well. There's a purpose statement written in the book, which is always helpful. 
The Bible doesn't always give this to us in every single book of the Bible, but sometimes when we get letters and epistles like this, we get a purpose statement. Here's why I wrote to you this letter. And we get this in chapter 5, verse 12. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 says this. By Slavanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We have a purpose statement. Peter wrote a letter of exhortation, and Peter wrote declaring the true grace of God, the true grace of God, and then called them to stand firm in it. So the big idea of 1 Peter, exhortation, the true grace of God, as opposed to false grace, which we'll look at today, and a call for those who are recipients of the letter to stand firm in that grace. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 gives us the purpose statement. Now, let's turn our attention to the first six words in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I love this. I love that Peter does call himself an apostle. Later in the book, he also calls himself a servant, and he does so in the book of Mark as well. And the apostle Peter is is a humble man by the fact that he would call himself an apostle and later call himself an elder. He wants us to know that he's coming here with the very authority of Jesus, but Peter is not something uh, like a pope. He's not coming and saying, look, I am Peter, listen to me. And in fact, in the Gospels, Peter and his fellows, the boys, were willing to write about Peter's failures. And if I was the apostle Peter... When it came to writing the New Testament books, or when it came to writing the Gospels, I would uh, want to come alongside and say, hey guys, now Mark is, is, Peter is dictating the book of Mark to, to Mark who wrote the letter. We get insight into in Peter's experience in the Gospels. I would tell the guys, please write my failures out of the book. I'm Peter. Please don't tell about me denying Jesus. Please don't tell about me being all over the place and, and chasing rabbits and being kind of the squirrel-like figure. Please just leave the high, high watermarks there and don't tell the blunders. Please don't tell about my failures, about my sins. And yet, we have all those included. I mean, this is an indication that the, that the Gospels are inspired of the Holy Spirit, that Peter didn't come alongside and say, guys, let's, let's, let's clean this up a bit. Present me as well as you can present me. I am Peter after all. But Peter knew that he was a servant of the Most High God. He knew he was an apostle and an elder. He knew who his master was. But as an apostle... Peter is going to speak authoritatively the very words of God. He does see himself as a fellow elder, but he sees himself also as this apostle speaking for the Lord. Now, this is an identity that's so crucial for us to understand. And this is the truth of all of the scriptures, is that when we get to the scriptures, we're not just reading mere human words. We are reading words that are the very words of God. When we opened God's word, it was like a, a light bulb went off for me years ago when I realized that the Holy Spirit just helped me to see, wait a minute, the Bible is the very word of God. And when we open God's word every single week or when we open our Bibles in the mornings or in the evenings, we're opening the, opening the, the Bible to hear and commune with God. We're not just opening the Bible to learn things about God, but we're communing with God and we're hearing his very words to us. God is speaking. You guys have heard me say this over and over again. If you think God is silent and he's not speaking to you and you're praying and you feel like your head, your, your prayers, not your head is hitting the ceiling, but your prayers are hitting the ceiling, 
Uh, open God's word. He's speaking to you. Open and pray. God, help me as I'm hearing you speak. Communicate with me. Help me to hear what's being said. Open my eyes and ears. My prayer every single time that I open my Bible is, God, give me eyes to see and ears to hear your word. I just don't want to read like the Pharisees read. I want to read as your child, and I want to know all that you have for me. Help me. And so Peter is speaking the very words of God. And it is intriguing, I think. There are only a few apostles. And uh, after the death of John, there are no apostles like the apostle Peter. You know, Peter calls himself an apostle. He was in a big A apostle. He was one of the original. And I think for us, it would be easy if we were one of those apostles, one of the 12, walking with Jesus and saw, saw, seeing his ascension. If we saw his death and resurrection, it would have been easy for us not to ever refer to ourselves as just a fellow elder, but to only refer to ourselves as the apostle and to appeal to our authority over and over again and to use it over and over again. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter knows he's under authority, and he's only at liberty to say what God would have him say. So he walks with humility. Now, a prerequisite to be an apostle, if you don't know, as he calls himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a prerequisite of being an apostle, according to first, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, a prerequisite, two prerequisites, it's these. It has to be a messenger who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and one who had walked through the earthly ministry with Jesus. So when they were going to pick a new apostle, which would be Matthias, after Judas went away, they had these two criteria to be an apostle. And they had to be a witness of the resurrected Lord, and they had to walk with him in his earth, earthly ministry. So this is Peter, and this is none of us. There's debate whether or not the apostolic gifting is given to the church at all today. And we, meet, we need to make sure that when we talk about any gifts of the Spirit, that we're not equating any sort of apostolic giftings, which would, would be a messenger, somebody that God uses to start a lot of new works. We need to make sure that we're not saying that they are on par with Peter or the apostles. Amen. Amen. Nobody this day is speaking the words of God unless they're quoting the scriptures. There's a massive difference. So we need to make sure that we know the difference there. But this is Peter. Uh, Peter did not un understand himself to be the rock on which the church was built. He did not understand himself to be that. But Peter, as he makes his confession about Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, Peter saw himself as an apostle, as a servant of Jesus Christ, and as an elder. So Peter is the author. There has been historically some debate about that. But Peter the apostle is going to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to hear the very words of God in this book. Now, the original audience, we find this out in verse 1, continue on. To those who are the elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The recipients of this letter are the elect exiles. The elect exiles who are exiles in the dispersion. Okay, so who is the original audience then? Well, it's several churches, but primarily it's going to be those elect exiles, which would be those who were chosen unto salvation. This is Christians, the church. When you hear the elect, the elect and the church are together. Christians are the elect, and elect are Christians. And the elect exiles in the dispersion are the specific groups of people that Peter is writing to. So in Acts 6, we find out there was great persecution that was happening 
in Jerusalem led by the Apostle Paul. Do you remember Stephen's sermon that he preached? In, in Acts chapter 1, we find out that when the Spirit comes and empowers God's people, that, that Jesus tells the disciples that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses out here. Well, it's, it's I think, pretty fascinating that nobody left Jerusalem, even after Acts 2, until what starts in Jerusalem? Persecution starts in Jerusalem. And there is a holy way, a right way to flee. What we see is great persecution begins to happen through the Apostle Paul, and the Jewish Christians had to be dispersed in this dispersion. They left, and actually we find out that they started going out throughout Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what pushed the Jerusalem church out was persecution. And isn't it, it's just this repeat story where people think we're going to stomp out Christianity. And when the persecution comes, the gospel just begins to spread out in more and more places. Amen. There's always going to be hotbeds of persecution throughout the world. And in places where Christianity is on the decline, what you've got to watch globally is where is Christianity on the incline? Because in some places, Christianity is going to be on the decline. In other places throughout the world, there's going to be explosive growth. That's why, as we've talked about before, there's 31% of the almost 8 billion people in the world today claim to be Christian. And that percentage continues to grow. It's projected to grow even right now, by the way. Over the next decade, the percentage of global Christians continues to grow. So as Christianity, more and more people are claiming to be, in the United States, Christianity in the United States seems to be just this dwindling thing, and more and more people claiming to be atheistic, agnostic, non-religious. What we see globally is the, I mean, the church continues to grow. It's almost like the gates of hell can't prevail against Christ and his mission. It's almost like the words of Christ are actually true. It's pretty cool. And so this dispersion happens. These Jewish Christians begin to go out into these Gentile regions, and they find in this Gentile region, these Gentile regions, what do they find? Well, they bring the gospel with them, but they also find that there are people that are Christians, and they start char starting churches together. And now you have dwelling together in unity, both Jew and Gentile, breaking bread together. They're fellowshipping together. They're worshiping the Lord Jesus together. And it's interesting in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8, that Peter was called this apostle to the Jews. And so here he is writing primarily to Jews, but also to Gentiles as well in these mixed churches, both Jew and Gentile together, in these Gentile cities. And we find that the gospel of Jesus is so powerful that both Jew and Gentile are united under this one message. It's this powerful rallying cry around the world. We're not going to go out and try, try, try to be as diverse as we possibly can and get diversity. But as you preach the gospel, here's what Jesus does. He brings in people, all different kinds of people, all different colors of people. And all can be united in this one message. And that's the message to the world is we're not going to adapt a message that's going to be more palpable for you or you. We're going to preach the gospel of Jesus. And what Jesus does is he brings together a global church to the point that one day people from all tribes and tongues will bow their knee and declare that Jesus is Lord. We see a microcosm of this already in the book of 1 Peter, that in these regions and in these cities, you have Jewish, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians worshiping the Lord Jesus together already very early on. Now, we see 
what we've been talking about through the book of Hosea was Israel within Israel. And this is what's so neat as we flip from the Old Testament to the New, we find that voila, right within Israel, there's an Israel within Israel, and that's who the Apostle Peter is writing to. Jewish Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are messianic, they, by the grace of God, accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And there are still, like we said last week or two weeks ago, millions of messianic Jews throughout this world. Daniel, right? Amen. Praise the Lord. Jew and Gentile united in Jesus Christ. Now, what's going to unfold for us in the next two verses is, uh, I prayed in my prayer that we're stepping into something more beautiful than Narnia here. This is the scriptures. Narnia has uh, like no measurement of glory compared to the Bible. And it, it's this picture, like the, the movies that we see. Uh, what was the movie that James Cameron made a few years ago that, that had the different colors and the beauty to it? What was it? It made like millions and millions of dollars. Avatar. And Avatar, everybody loved in Avatar the images and the colors and the beauty of, of that movie. And we grapple with colors and images because we know that there's a reality beyond reality. And when we step into the scriptures, we're stepping into reality, God's world, the kingdom of God. And we get to see some beautiful and wondrous things about the grace of God today. And what we're going to see here today is the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Actually, in a different order, the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son, all working together through this word called election. And we're going to go there today talking about the electing grace of God. Why? Because the letter starts with the elect exiles in these areas, and they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They're elect in the sanctification of the Spirit, and they're elect for obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. And then verse 2 ends with this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I've asked you guys this before in preaching. Does anybody want a whole bunch of grace, and does anybody want a whole bunch of peace multiplied to you this morning? How about over the next few months? Anybody want some of that? Multiplication of grace. Multiplication of peace. I keep it coming, man. I want it. I want grace. God's grace, the real deal. I don't want false grace. I want the real deal grace. And that's what Apostle Peter's writing about. Real grace. I write to you about the true grace of God. Not this false grace, not this phony grace that calls itself grace. We want the real, the authentic, the 200 proof stuff that is otherworldly and it's absolutely glorious. That's what we want and we want a whole bunch of peace. We have peace with God. That's what Christians have. Nobody else in this world has it. We have it. And so we're going to have grace and peace multiplied to us this morning and over the next few months. And it's going to be a wonderful thing. The elect exiles, foreknown by the Father. Here's what it says. Those who are elect exiles, and then it gives who those groups are. And then, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does it mean to be elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? These elect were clearly foreknown by God. The Father. Now, there's a common mistake that happens when we start talking about the foreknowledge of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, tells us that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You get these words foreknowledge and predestined together. Those he, fore, those he foreknew, he also predestined. And because in Romans 8 and here, the word foreknowledge is before the word election or we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. There has been, I think, 
clear mistakes that have been made when it comes to understanding God's grace. Because like I said, Romans 8, 29 says the same thing. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And because of that, there is a large group of people, large group of people, and by the way, if we come to some different conclusions on this, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We are saved by grace in Jesus. We're saved by Jesus. We're not saved by our understanding of that salvation, which is pretty important. However, we want to understand what the Apostle Peter is saying. We want to understand ultimately what God is saying to us. There are, I think, some less than faithful ways to understand these verses. There's a large group of people who say that what this means is that God looked into the future and he saw everyone's choices that everyone would ever make throughout the history of the world. And what God did is he chose those he knew who would choose him. So here's how it works. The motive for God's election then is God's foreknowledge. He looks in the, down the corridor of time, down through eternity, and this is a philosophical to what, way to look at theology here. Because if you'll notice, there is nothing about human choices in this passage. There's a whole lot about God's foreknowledge, but the, the philosophical outlook is, idea then is, God looks in, in time and sees this group of people chooses me and this group of people doesn't choose me. They don't choose me. Therefore, I'm going to elect those who chose me. Anybody heard this before? Okay. Like most of us have and heard this before. And it, it's, a, it's a way to try to philosophically grapple with theology. And you've heard me say this, but I want to say it again. Biblical theology is so much better than philosophy. Because philosophy, and if you do theology by way of philosophy, which is trying to take logical lines and connecting them together and trying to, to go uh, to find out truth through your rationale, well, if that means this, this means this, and then all, this all goes together, what ends up happening is Bible verses end up shattering our philosophical systems, and we don't know what to do with it. But the Bible is going to invite us into something so much more glorious than that. So there's two big questions that I have and that the Bible has by way of correction, for that understanding. Number one, so we're, we're critiquing now the idea that God cho chose who he knew would choose him. So his election was based on our choice. Okay, two big questions with that. Number one, the text does not say anything about human choices. It says they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But it doesn't say anything about according to the foreknowledge of their choices. It doesn't say anything about that. It just says according to his foreknowledge. But secondly, the biggest problem is that the Bible teaches clearly that no one seeks God, no, not one. Amen. The Bible clearly teaches that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible clearly teaches that all we like sheep have... The Bible teaches that we're born in sin in the state of bondage. And you are... What in your trespasses and sins? Dead in your trespasses and sins. So the concept of God choosing those who would choose him, it completely disregards the fact that mankind made their choice in a garden six to 10,000 years ago. That Adam was this federal head, this representative of humanity. And we don't come into the womb and out of the womb and into this world in a morally neutral state. We come bent towards sin because we are sinners from the inside out. We are born in a state of bondage, not 
ultimately and inherently free. We have to be set free by Jesus Christ. We all know the verse, right? If the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. There's a song that came out years ago by Desperation Band. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. I think it was Desperation Band. But that's the big thing. If the Son has come to you and broken your change and set you free. You see, the problem is that God, in his foreknowledge, saw human sinfulness, not saw, he didn't see a group of people who, who didn't sin and, and chose him and a group of people who did sin and didn't choose him. The garden is a reality, and we're sinners from the inside out. So the concept of God choosing those who would choose him disregards that fact. And this passage in Romans chapter, chapter 8, verse 29 it's not telling us that God chose those who would choose him. <laughs> um, God would not be able to choose anyone because nobody and no sinner would have chosen him. Like if, if God looked down the corridor of time and said, okay, I'm going to choose everybody that chose me, he would see a, a mass of humanity that didn't choose him and would have no group of people to choose. So then... What does elect according to the foreknowledge of God mean? You might remember this as we went through Romans chapter 8, but also chapter 1 verse 20 helps us out. Like in my Bible, I'm turning one page. Look at verse 20 in chapter 1. This is speaking about Jesus. He, speaking Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus was also foreknown before the foundation of the world. Okay, what does that mean? Because there's some parallels here with what the Apostle Paul is, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter is doing. As God foreknew Christ, he also foreknew those he elected. It's, it's, it's not simply about foreknown choices. This is about foreknown people. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew. In other words, God chose to foreknow some people that he did not choose to foreknow other people. There's a... False grace, when we contrast true grace with false grace, false grace is a concept that's constructed philosophically around the idea that humans are morally neutral. False grace is the kind of thing that's given to a person because of the person. Because of the person. Grace comes my way because of me. Grace doesn't come my way because of that person. But true grace is totally different than that. Real grace is God's gift to a sinner in spite of a sinner. Not because of the sinner. God's love is otherworldly. And here's the thing. We're going to see this here today. Um, real grace offends people before it delights people. It's offensive because it doesn't make sense. No, we're inundated with messages about human greatness. And Thinking about God being free to do what God wants to do enrages many people. Um, God is free to do what God wants to do. 
He's not obligated to do anything for anyone. And yet, he does. It offends people. Well, why does God's grace offend people? Because there's a part of the human being, there's a part of all of us, that wants to deny or suppress sinfulness. Uh, There's a part of the human being that wants to think that we have skin in the game. That God's love for me is based on my lovability. Commenting on Romans chapter 9, Tom Schreiner says that what's shocking to the Apostle Paul in light of human sinfulness is is not that God would not save everybody, but what's shocking to the Apostle Paul is that God would choose to save anybody. Why in the world would God choose to save any of us? After what we've done? After, after the Garden of Eden, after my rebellion, why would God choose to save anybody? In fact, we're told explicitly in Romans chapter, chapter 9 that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Election depends not on human will. So God's electing or sovereign choice of electing and foreknowing according to the foreknowledge of God is, is not based on human will. Our choices didn't inspire this. It's based on God who has mercy. But it's offensive before it's delightful. And it is true that God knows all human decisions. He knows every possibility. God's knowledge is exhaustive of everything, everyone, every possibility, and Isaiah says that he declares the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning because he has declared it. So this passage is not simply saying that God knew what you would do or what you would choose before you were born. It's saying that he foreknew you and elected you to be his in spite of, what, of knowing what you would do. That there's a way that he foreknew you that he did not foreknow anybody else. It's saying that he knew you and elected you in spite of that. And he did that for those, and he did not foreknow those who are in hell or those who are not saved yet in the same way that he foreknew you. His knowledge is exhaustive. And yet the language foreknow is specifically given to those who are in Christ Jesus. He foreknew you. He knew you in a way that he did not know those who are in hell. That he did not know those who are not yet Christians. And this, I think, is a, is, a, is a theological category to explore. The glory of God's foreknowledge, even before two places, his foreknowledge of persons, before his electing of persons, that he foreknew you, even in your sin, and said, I'm going to choose you and elect you anyways. In spite of what I know about you, I'm going to love you anyways. And I keep saying this, that God's grace Offends before it delights. And for some, you've never felt the sharp edge of the grace of God. And you've just seen it. You've just accepted it. Yes, God's grace is so glorious. But for others, like myself, the grace of God, I liked in in theory. But in practice, I liked merit and reward. I really liked God saving me because of me. I really liked me being attractive to God. And God thinking... He, there's something in that Jared guy that, I, that he, he loves me. He's got a heart that's good. 
And uh, this gray stuff stung. Stung for a long time. And, uh, and maybe that's you today. It's like, eh. Maybe today grace becomes delightful. I will say this with this mystery, and this is again why biblical theology is better and more supreme and superior than any kind of philosophy of this world. Um, Hear this. God is not to blame for humans' sinfulness and the population of hell. God is not to blame for that. Hell is populated apart from God's sovereign choice because of human sinfulness and rebellion. No one in hell can blame God for being there. That's what mankind chose from the garden forward. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, before we were Christians, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the son, the, the, the one that's now uh, at work in the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. So, so hell is populated because people want to be there because they've rebelled against God. And in case this may be a little bit confusing... Let me invite you into this. This is a conversation that me and my dad have been having and, and many people have about. We actually had this at, uh, at men's discipleship a couple weeks ago. How about this for a mystery? If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you to be. It's because he foreknew you. God the Father foreknew you and, and chose you to be. And uh, if people die in their sins, it's because God didn't choose to save them. And that's their fault. It's not God's fault. You're like, well, how does that go together? I don't know. And how about this? Anyone who wants to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can today, right now. And if you'll trust him, he'll save you. He won't turn you away. Isn't this the glory of the scriptures is that we're invited into reality, ultimate reality. And this is the way God sees things to be. I regularly rely on God saying this to me. My ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so I'm okay with truths. I don't know how they go together, but they do. And notice, this is the work of the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what about the Spirit? Let's look at the work of the Spirit. Elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Beloved, brothers and sisters in Christ, children of the Most High God, you are elected by the Spirit and set apart by the Spirit, sanctified is the word, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, normally we think sanctification, we think the process of spiritual growth, like becoming more like Christ, progressive sanctification. Like each day, now that I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit of God within me. Now that's this, this walk with the Lord, where as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so we walk in Him and we're growing in our faith and learning to follow in Jesus' footsteps and just wanting to obey Him more and more every single day because we have a new heart and the Holy Spirit's at work in us. That, that's what we think about when we think about sanctification. But in this passage, along with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, we're talking about something definite, definite sanctification. Something that's like you are sanctified. And and when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification, we need to keep these categories separated because it helps us to understand truth of the scriptures that often people confuse. Because, uh, you know, I grew up in a denomination that said that you could be totally sanctified. And what they meant is walking Christian, not, not grew up in a denomination, went to college in a denomination that said you could be totally sanctified. So you'd go to Christian camp and it'd say, are you saved, baptized with the Holy Spirit, uh, and sanctified. And what they meant is Christian perfection. So like now you're free from the temptations of sin, like sanctified in that way. You're like, well, that's absurd. 
unless you're a complete phony liar, uh, you're in this life dealing with sin just like everybody else, right? I mean, nobody in this room in their right mind, you'd at least have the shame to not raise your hand up and say, I'm totally sanctified. So nobody's fully Christ-like. Nobody is what we will be for eternity, but apparently we are sanctified because it says it. Sanctified in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is something that is true about us. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, The church of God that's in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Don't we know the church in Corinth? They had some spiritual growth to undergo, right? Some spiritual uh, building up. They, they weren't exactly sanctified in the way we think they were sanctified. I mean, issues galore in Corinth. And yet, the Apostle Paul said that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And here's what the truth that the Holy Spirit has done for us. We are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but then we're also elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is talking about being set apart. So if this clock is a human being, here's what the Holy Spirit has done for us. Set us out of, picked us up, the claw, picked us up out of this world and set us apart from the world. Sanctified, set apart. Here's the world, here's the real world. The true world, the kingdom of God. And the Spirit of God has sanctified us, set us apart. We have been sanctified, and we are being sanctified as we walk more in Christ. But there is some objective reality that the Spirit of God has done for us. He sets us apart. The question is, um, do you know the Lord or not? Because if you know the Lord, if you're a Christian, then you have been set apart. You're fundamentally different. You're living in a different way. You're a part of a different tribe. You're in the body of Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit has done, set us apart. So why are you here this morning? Why do you claim the name of Christ? Why do you claim to be a Christian? Why, in a world gone completely bonkers, are you pursuing Christ-likeness? And the answer, yet again, is not found in here. Why? Because the Spirit of God has come to you. And the Spirit of God has picked you up and sanctified you. This is the work of the Spirit. Sanctified you and put you with the people of God. We have the work of the Father. We have the work of the Spirit. So why are you pursuing Christ-likeness in a world God mad? Because of the Father and his work, and because of the Spirit and his work. And then we get to the work of Christ. Look at this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ Jesus, and for sprinkling with his blood. We were elected for obedience to Christ Jesus, and for sprinkling with his blood. You were chosen to be obedient to Christ. You were chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. For every single Christian, every Christian across the globe, um, remember this is about grace and peace being multiplied to you. This is about words of exhortation. And too often when it comes to this doctrine, Christians around the world, when it comes to what we're seeing here, like, is there anything else in all the scriptures that we fight more about except like, pre like predestination, really? Like, predestination is what people fight about the most, right? Right. 
Adam said this, it's, it's not designed to be a, a point of argument in the Bible. It's given to us as a gift, as a comfort, not an arguing point or a position. It's not given to us like, here's an argument bomb, we're going to drop it in a group of Christians and you guys have at it and just fight each other and bicker and complain and, and, and be angry with one another and pick sides and all this kind of stuff. It's not given for that point. It's given that grace and peace would be multiplied at us for, for us. It's given to us that we would be exhorted, that we would be encouraged, that God has had his mind on you throughout the history of the world before you even existed. God foreknew you. He knew you. He chose you. He set you apart by the Spirit and then elected you to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Uh, your, per, your, your sanctification has been purchased by Jesus. This is a, um, all of grace. And you've been chosen to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And I think that means justified. I think that means your, your salvation purchased. I mean, without the spilling of blood, there is no remission of sins. And to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ is to be offered forgiveness and total forgiveness, not just partial forgiveness. I mean, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And God chose that for us. Hey, you, you're going to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And friends, you and I, it, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like we were in this mass of humanity and we like signal, like, like threw out the, the flare and, uh, and shot a flare up and got God's attention and said, everybody that's shooting a flare up, that's the ones I know to sprinkle with his blood. This is a sheer act of God's mercy that you would be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And it's the blood of Jesus that justifies us. And in that blood, that contains the very power to sustain you. Within the blood of Jesus was your salvation. And Jesus purchased your life. He bought you. You are bought with a price. And the Bible says that's why you glorify God with your body. Because you're not your own. The work of your hands, this is Christ working through you. You belong to God. You belong to God. He purchased you with his precious blood. And now what he's doing with us is he's beautifying us. He's, he's changing us. He's making us into his own image. In fact, the, the imagery is from Ephesians 5 is that he's sanctifying his bride, beautifying his bride. And there's going to be a day, and this is a, this is a promise. It's inevitable. And for every Christian, talk about comfort. It's inevitable that you will be beautified and you will be presented to Jesus without spot or blemish. Not one spot or one blemish. And what's declared true, that you're righteous in Christ Jesus. You're declared righteous in Christ Jesus. But one day, guys, I, I've encouraged you with this before. And this is God's word re just reminding us of these things. Uh, there's going to be a day, Jesus, Jesus' salvation of you is so powerful that you will be rid of every single sinful temptation that you face every single day. That's how powerful the sprinkling of his blood is over your life. That it's so total, it's so complete, it's so free that one day he will so beautify us that we will stand before a holy God and we will be as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinless. Sinless, completely. Not just declared righteous like we are right now, but also completely sinless like Jesus is right now. It's a glorious thing. Sprinkled with his blood, God chose us and elected us, these elect Gentiles, excuse me, elect Jews, and then the elect Gentiles, consequently as well, were elected for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Chosen to obey Him and be sprinkled 
with his blood. Jesus is the one who did all of this. And now what we see here is the, the beauty of God at work. Um, Trinitarian theology is a mystery because there is one God. We are not tritheists as Christians. We don't believe there's not three gods. There's not just two gods. There, there's, not, there's not two gods. There's one God. We are monotheistic. There is one God. And yet in this, in the most precious thing we see in the scriptures, the salvation of sinners, we see the Father at work, the Spirit at work, and the Son at work. All together. One God, three persons, each person fully God, yet there's only one God. Again, how about being invited into the most glorious mystery of all time? Theology proper, which is the study of God, is so, so deep. There's one God, three persons, each person is fully God, and yet there's only one God. There's, there's no way to understand that. The only thing that you can understand is that you cannot understand it. You can get that. As soon as you think, I've got God, I understand this, I know exactly how it works, rest assured you don't. The knowledge of the holy is too wonderful for us. The secret things belong to the Lord. And there are things that we will not discover until all eternity and it's going to take all eternity to discover. But you notice this Trinitarian work. Notice Peter's concern from the start is that he wants these elect exiles to know about their election, but also about the Father's work in it, the Spirit's work in it, and the Son's work in it. Three in one, in cahoots together, working for them, working for the elect right now in their persecution. Know in your struggles, know under duress that God has had his eye on you for eternity, his heart towards you for eternity, and he is strong enough to take his thoughts and his heart's desire and make it a reality in your life. And there is, in this world today, for some reason, we... The, the concept of the freedom of the human being is so beloved, and we hate the concept of the freedom of God. And God is declaring, Peter is declaring here, God is free, and he's done all this for you. You're just going to have to deal with it. He loves you that much. He loves you that much, and he is sticking with you, and he's going to walk with you, and it's intended to be this comfort that, that God is for you, and he is with you, and even if your flesh gets torn from your body, your eternity is secure. Jesus even has the true fleshly body, not just a jar of clay, but an eternal body in store for them. And so the Father is at work, the Spirit is at work, and the Son is at work. And it's a cure for temporary problems. It is at least a tonic. It is a help for temporary problems to realize and to understand and to praise God for His eternal purposes for us. Not just for his bride as a whole, but for you personally. When you're in your temporary problems, and you've heard that big decisions that, that are tragic decisions in this life are people that are taking permanent solutions for temporary problems. You've heard that phrase before. But what we have right here in these first two verses for us is comfort in those temporary problems. And that comfort is the eternal purposes of God for us. God is eternally invested in you. He foreknew you personally. He knew your sin against Him. He knew that you wouldn't choose Him. He knew that you wouldn't willingly walk toward Him. He knew that you would do exactly what Adam did. 
And yet, what did God do? He chose you to be his son or his daughter anyways. And he opened your eyes. He changed your heart. He changed your heart. And in that heart change, in making you new, a new creation, what do new creations want to do? They want to honor and obey the Lord. God did this in us. He knew all your sin, and he decided to save you and love you anyways. Now, this is going to be the differentiation between true grace and false grace. I hope I said differentiation right, because I was informed that I've been saying pronunciation. or What Jordan was saying, I think it's not pronunciation. I've been saying pronunciate the wrong way. It's funny to pronunciate the word. It's like pronunciation or something. I don't know. I've been, saying it, I've been saying it in a funny way. But here is the work of God demonstrated and we see the difference between true grace and false grace. True grace is a grace that leads us to praise God for His mercy upon us. Let me state this again. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, the purpose statement. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. True grace... False grace. True grace is grace that leads us to praise God for His mercy. False grace turns us inward. False grace turns us inward. False grace finds inside of the heart of man some goodness that drew God to us. That caused God to save us. Something inside of us. But real grace knows that God came to us and His goodness is what drew Himself to us, not our goodness. False grace says it was our goodness that drew God to us. True grace says, oh no, it was God's goodness that drew Him to us. And we are to praise Him for His mercy. And so we're going to see over this next month, it's not like we didn't in the book of Hosea, But we're going to see grace and peace multiplied week in and week out. You come here and you invite some friends to come. Say, hey, come on. Here's what you know they're going to get. Grace and peace multiplied. Come look at the grace of God. You know what? The grace of God may sting you a little bit when you hear you're a sinner and only God can save you, that you don't have the power to save yourself. But on the other side of that salvation, when you realize, my goodness, I was the one in bondage and Jesus came to me and ripped those shackles that were on my hands and gave me a new heart and opened my eyes to see. When you're on the other side, when you see what he did for you, what he can do for sinners, with the Lord's help, you'll look at that and say, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for bringing peace to me. From the start, Peter wants us to know, wants God's people to know that it's God's grace and peace that's for us, and he wants that grace and peace to be multiplied. So that's what we're going to get the next couple months. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your